recently, I've been listening to a biography on Abraham Lincoln. It focuses most especially on his mentors, on those figures that had an impact on his thought, on his life. Henry Clay, Andrew Jackson, Daniel Webster, I think, as well as the founders, most especially, like Washington and Jefferson. From some of them, Lincoln developed his understanding of the relationship between the Declaration of Independence and the Constitution, something I'd never thought of. For him, the Declaration is the interpretive key for the Constitution. It's the guiding document for understanding the founders' intent for the Constitution. For Lincoln, the Declaration was an essential document for emancipation and abolition. We hold these truths to be self-evident, that all men are created equal, that they are endowed by their creator with certain unalienable rights, that among these are life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness still moving to this day. The Declaration seems to have been something like the seed the founders planted, knowing that slavery couldn't be turned off like a light switch, but through the formation of conscience. Without the Declaration of Independence, it seems the Constitution could be used in the hands of those in power to govern in a way that's inconsistent with the self-evident truths of our human nature, which is the unifying feature and the basis of our equality. Separate the branch of the Constitution from the vine of the Declaration, as southern states did, and there are problems. John Locke, the English political philosopher, is widely regarded as having the greatest influence on the Declaration of Independence. But other Enlightenment figures did too, and these, in turn, were beneficiaries of those who came before them. Take Aristotle, for example, the great Greek philosopher. He understood that matter is the principle of individuation. From it, you abstract the form. Here's what he meant. Matter is the principle of individuation. It allows to distinguish between one object and another. You have silver hair, you have brown hair, you have light skin, you have dark skin, you're tall, you're short. Those differences in matter allow for us to distinguish between one another. But what we see is not what we say that thing is. I see dark, I see light, I see tall, I see big, but I say human. We abstract from what we see and say what it is, the nature of the thing. There's something invisible that you hold in common with one another. There's an immaterial, invisible dimension that stands behind the material or invisible one, which he termed soul. A vegetative soul for plants, trees, etc., animal soul, and for humans, well, it's a rational soul capable of saying, I and engaging in self-reflection. This is humanity's unifying feature. It's common to all. It's what makes us equal, although Aristotle doesn't seem to have taken this to its logical conclusion of forbidding slavery. Matter, on the other hand, is what distinguishes us from one another.
the invisible dimension of the soul was given much more depth and breadth and grandeur in Revelation. God created man in his own image. In the image of God, he created him. Male and female, he created them. There is our source for our dignity, our greatness, our equality. While our bodies must be good too, since God formed the human person as body and soul and called us very good. Yet divisions persisted. The world was broken down into us and them. Jew or Gentile, Greek or barbarian, slave or free, male or female. Transcending such divisions was one of the great novelties of Christianity, a sign of the uniqueness and historicity of Jesus Christ. He really did live. Something was absolutely unique about him. He is what enabled Paul to write that husband and wife should be subject to one another. Look at the unity and equality brought by Christ, which was totally unheard of then. And Christ is what allowed Paul to begin the abolition of racism and slavery when he wrote, Slaves, be obedient to those who are your earthly masters, with fear and trembling and singleness of heart, as to Christ, not in the way of eye service as men pleasers, but as servants of Christ, doing the will of God from the heart, rendering service with a good will as to the Lord and not to men, knowing that whatever good anyone does, he will receive the same again from the Lord, whether he is slave or free. Look, it doesn't matter if you're the master or the slave. All are equal before the Lord and will be repaid according not to their status, but according to who they are, what they've done. Masters, he goes on to say, do the same to them and forbear threatening, knowing that he who is both their master and yours is in heaven and that there is no partiality with him. That's remarkable. This was simply unthinkable and not done before God became man in Jesus, who required everyone to be treated with equal dignity because they were part of his family. Bend this truth, or ignore it as some Christians have, dismiss it as the Nazis did, or sever yourself from the branch of Christ and revelation, as many in our country are doing, and tension Differences, divisions of us and them, racial accusations, hatred, and violence become the standard of the day. For without the invisible image that unites and ennobles us, we are left only with the characteristics of individuation, qualities that differentiate us from one another. Big, tall, short, black, white, brown. I'm reminded of the 20th century Soviet dissident, Alexander Solzhenitsyn. He spent eight years in a forced labor camp for criticizing Joseph Stalin in a private letter. After he was released, he exposed the terrible abuses of human rights. And in a 1970 lecture, he argued that the communist culture of the lie and communist violence were closely linked, such that when the lie was dispersed, the violence will come crashing down. 
So much of what we're being fed by the media, politicians, action groups, the wealthy, and in diversity training sessions has the feel of insincerity, disingenuousness, duplicity, a power play, a lie. When CEOs making 10, 15, 18 million dollars a year speak of injustice, why not begin at home to right the wrongs and just take 5 million? Surely that's got to be enough. When celebrities speak out, lecture us against privilege from their mansions, when the Los Angeles City Council president calls for defunding the police while having a personal police escort at her home, when 81% of blacks oppose defunding the police, when poor minorities are trapped by unions and politicians and public schools that are failing them, when a new report from the Manhattan Institute shows that police killings of African Americans declined by 60 to 80% from the late 1960s to the early 2000s and have remained at this level ever since, when the Washington Post database records that out of more than 10 million annual arrests by police, 999 people were shot in 2019, including 424 whites and 252 blacks, with 12 black victims and 26 white ones being unarmed. When an African-American congressman contradicts the prevailing racial narrative and is called an Uncle Tom and the N-word with no outcry in the media or in BLM, when nearly all societal ills are diagnosed as whiteness and personal responsibility is all but dismissed, when all of this and more is added up along with stoking violence in our streets, it feels like a lie. Racism demands correction, but it looks like the issue of race and the people in need are being used not served. It feels like an absurd attempt to establish unity through what differentiates us from one another, a project that seems more designed for conflict than communion. And it feels, no, it appears through the arguments and the evidence that the American branch is falling away from the vine that has nourished and enlivened and made this nation fruitful. Remain faithful to the vine. Without Jesus, we can do nothing but revert to the divisions and inhumanity he overcame. Parents, grandparents, this is why I return again and again to Mass and the Catholic way of life, encouraging and even sometimes admonishing. Jesus is making a metaphysical statement with his vine and branch analogy. At the natural level of existence, without me, you can't even exist. As well as at the supernatural, unless you eat my body and drink my blood, you do not have life within you. And he is also indicating that without this integral, integral connection with the source of your humanity and the pattern of human life fully alive, your life, your child's life will be less human, less fulfilling and more susceptible to all the lies about human beings which 
which your children are daily being inundated. You are so much greater than what you are being fed by those out there. Parents, your first responsibility is to witness to this transcendent dimension of the human person from which flows your child's sense of purpose, self-worth, and the ability to discern their own calling and the lies that distort who they are. Instill our way of life as early as you can in your children. Make your witness credible. Demonstrate that remaining on the vine is so essential to their humanity that it's even worth the risk of venturing out to mass in a pandemic. For it's especially here where we encounter the source and goal of that special and visible part of us that makes us human and that makes us equal and that can make for a more human world too. Take to heart the words John Paul II uttered in his return to Soviet-occupied Poland as he dispersed the lie and gradually the violence too. The future of Poland, he said, will depend on how many people are spiritually mature enough to be nonconformist. The future of the United States will depend on how many people are spiritually mature enough to be nonconformist. Remain in Christ. Do all that you can to mature. Disperse the lies about our common humanity and bear much fruit.